Welcome to Ready Steady Read for December. I'm Chris Kane, and along with James Lavery, we're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so talking about books. As you would expect, there is a festive flavour to this month's programme, but don't worry if you're listening to this at the beginning of January, because chances are most of the books we're going to be recommending for Christmas presents will be reduced in the sales, so you'll get a bargain. We'll also be talking about the place of annuals, be it the Beano or Shorts Almanac. What place do they have in 2009-2010? We'll be asking what are the books that stand out from the last 10 years. The book, sw- the book swap is taking a break this month to make way for our festive goodie bag, but don't worry, bits and pieces, that section of the show where we talk about things that really don't fit anywhere else, will be here, that'll be near the end of the show, but as always we start by asking, what have you been reading this month? James, you first, you've been reading uh, Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah, I picked up Jeremy Clarkson's book which is entitled Driven to Distraction and which is essentially a collection of his car reviews from the Sunday Times, but the issue with Jeremy Clarkson is that they are no more car reviews than Adrian Gill, who also writes for the Sunday Times and writes allegedly restaurant reviews. You might get a brief mention of the name of the car and whether he liked it or not towards the end, but they are essentially funny columns. Um, he's, and, he is, he's, he's a grumpy old man, which is, if you, you take this as the compliment it's intended, which is why I think you probably liked the book. Absolutely loved it. The only problem that I, and he is indeed a grumpy old man, indeed if you look at the picture on the cover of the book, you'll see a very grumpy old Clarkson face, and he's not the best looking of guys. I mean, I know he's about eight foot six tall and silly curly hair. But, you know, a smile would occasionally help him. <laughs> what was it you... Notwithstanding what, that. What do you like about Jeremy Clarkson? I mean, in terms of it is all based on cars. And, and Top Gear is a car programme that has nothing to do with cars anymore. It's all to do with the, the relationship between the three presenters. Do the cars manage to overcome the... The, the, the personality that, that Clarkson brings to this. So they're very much a, a secondary concern. No, they are very much a secondary concern. I mean, Clarkson just writes funnily, and it's as simple as that. And there's no use denying it, and there's no use trying to do something else. OK, he seizes upon the subject of cars uh, in order to do that funny writing. But they're just entertaining and amusing. Yes, he does have something to say about the cars, and a lot of what he says with I would agree with. But I'm not a petrol head. I just find the man funny. Just as when we watch Top Gear, we find the interaction between the three presenters really the most important and funny part of it, as well as, you know, people spend a lot of money on that show, don't they? There's a huge budget for it. But even so, it's just three blokes in a pub, or at least what you wish three blokes in a pub would be like. It's probably how you... Imagine three blokes, blokes yes. in a pub would be like after you, every one of them has had a good swally. It's exactly how you and I sound in the pub. We should think about taking over the top gear seats. Well, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Well, that's uh, that's Jeremy Clarkson's Driven to Distraction. Just so you know, James, that's now crossed off your list of potential Christmas presents because I had identified it as one that was right up your street, but you beat me to it. I've been reading uh, Stephen King's new novel, Under the Dome, all 860-odd pages of it. And, uh, you know, I'm not normally a Stephen King fan, but I, I, I had to read this for, for another assignment I was doing. And he's almost turned me round on him. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed this book. It was, uh, it was very, very, int- very interesting to read. Well, what's the premise of that? Tell us about that, because you know that you and I disagree over Stephen King. I think he is an astonishing writer. I think he's absolutely wonderful. He's clearly a man driven to writing, you know, can't put down the pen or the word processor. But anyway, tell me about yeah, my, for one my problem. My, I was going to say my problem with Stephen King is the same problem you have Dan, with, with Dan Brown. I think his imagination is good, but his writing style just doesn't connect with me. I'm not saying he's a bad writer. I'm saying that normally his writing style doesn't connect with me. But this book did, and it'll become clear why uh, in just a second. But the premise is it's the the, the, the residents of Chester's Mill. It's a small town in uh, Massachusetts where. Uh, 
where Stephen King is from, or up in New England, and one day this barrier cuts off the town from the rest of the world. It's like it's the dome. It just appears, and literally nothing can get through it. The government fire exit missiles at it. Everything gets done uh, in the early stages of this book to try and break the barrier, but they can't. And really what happens is within the barrier, it's almost asking the question, what would happen to a society if it wasn't answerable to anybody? You know, if, if the American president, the military, can't get in to stop things, what would happen? Would the councillors take over? Would uh, the kids run riot? Would uh, would there be you know, a civil war and a small-scale develop? Or indeed, as happens in this book, all of these things. And it's... Uh, as that's say, the point, isn't it, Chris? I mean, these things are... You know, what actually happens is that you simply take this dome and, and other uh, types of books do the same as a literary device... It's not a real thing. It's just for exploring the personalities of the people involved. And from what you tell me, it sounds as though it does that. Well, the, well, the thing that I liked about why his writing style never got a chance to annoy me is there's about 100 different characters in this book and their stories are told three pages at a time. And we keep coming back to, to there are certain characters who are central to the plot, but we keep seeing these additional characters. Who, some of them are there just to be killed. Some of them are there to aid plot development. But there's a whole host of characters... And it's, it's, you know how Stephen King, when you read his books, you always seem to think they could become films? This yes. one is a miniseries waiting to happen. It is literally a miniseries. It, you know, it's, well, there it's, you go, because I've, I've watched a bit of it, and I have to say I didn't like it all that much, although it, it was okay. A bit of the stand. Now, I loved the book. I remember reading the book 20-odd years ago. I thought the book was absolutely fantastic. Couldn't put it down was actually performing in a play at the time, and every moment it came off stage, as I would normally do, I would go over my lines. This time I didn't. I read another couple of pages out of the stand and then jumped back on and performed again. Um, but the miniseries wasn't all that great, and that's been a problem with Stephen King's books. Some of the stuff is wonderful. Some of the films that have been made from his books are wonderful. The Green Mile is a classic example, and others are just dreadful. The one thing I didn't like about this book, and perhaps this is me uh, making a criticism, but this is actually a backhanded compliment in the form of a criticism to Stephen King. He does not write text that is not necessary for the plot. And what happens with this book is you very quickly identify characters that you like and characters you dislike, and it's very tempting when you know you've got four pages coming up of a character's story that you dislike to skip over it to get back to the one that you do yeah, like. Yeah. But I, um, I did that a couple of times and I had to go back and find out why I just missed this major plot development and it <laughs> happened in the second page of some character who just didn't appeal to me at all. So you well, have to right, read it word for word. Yeah, I, I absolutely understand that because I've done that myself, particularly in what they call epistolary novels, you know, which are told from different viewpoints, are told as the original Dracula was by Bram Stoker in the form of letters and journals and all the rest of it. When you got to somebody that you didn't like, as you say, you jumped ahead, and that's generally not a good thing. You have to struggle on through those things, uh, lest you miss something important. So that's the books we've been reading this month. Uh, James has been uh, uh, perusing Jeremy Clarkson's Driven to Distraction, and I've been reading Stephen King's Under the Dome. 25th of December is a day that means different things to different people. You might be at church celebrating the birth of Jesus. You'll probably be spending the day with family, watching the kids get excited about Santa and all the presents under the tree. And if you like books, you'll probably be receiving a special type of book. Books that have been chosen for you by somebody else. It's only at this time of year where your family have liberty to pick books for you and you have liberty to pick books for them. It means quiz books, fact books, bizarre books, basically books... 
that you'd never dream of buying in July. So this month, we thought we'd give you some ideas for some Christmas presents. And James, you've been buying for others this month. You've been buying for mum and dad and gran and granddad. So let's talk about, first of all, what you found for mum. Well, what I thought for mum, and I normally am not a lover of the uh, autobiography, and particularly the, the celebrity autobiography, but I'm not sure that Maureen Lipman falls into that category of being a celebrity. This is Maureen Lipman. It's called Past It Notes, um, and in, it's basically a whole series of small vignettes, about both about her life and also about some of the things that she's been through in the theatre. It's fantastic. I absolutely love it. It would make a wonderful uh, Christmas present, I think, for any mother. They will enjoy the fact that you know Maureen Lipman is a, a well-known name, a great actress. There's certainly still a touch of celebrity about her. Uh, but also they'll enjoy just the kind of stories that she tells. And you can sit and read your way through it, as I did, or you can just dip into it. You know, just find something that you like about it. It's What did they used to say about the old news of the world? All human life is there. You know, and it's very much like that. I would firmly recommend that to uh, anybody for their mummy. That's a book for mum. What about a book for dad? A book for dad? Here's one. Roy Hudd's new biography is out, or autobiography. I haven't read it. But I just love Roy Hudd. I thought he was absolutely fantastic. Again, just detect the show business theme as we go through all of this. But Roy Hudd's book is called uh, A Fart in a Colander. And Roy Hudd is a kind of odd guy. I mean, he was at the height of the satire boom, had the news headlines for years and years and years till the BBC dropped it, rather foolishly again, in my opinion. Uh, but also at the same time was an old kind of music hall guy. Loved all that old-fashioned music hall stuff. All the old guys was a fund of knowledge on that. Uh, and, of course, was a great pantomime artist as well. So I think for Grandad, that would be just fantastic. Well, that's for Dad, I hope. What about Grandad? Oh, sorry, for Dad. Sorry, yeah, you're quite right, for Dad. What are, what are we, well, what are we giving Grandad, then? Well, let's waken Grandad up a little bit, right? And, again, this is one of those kinds of books that only does come out at this time of year, and it's the QI book. It's the QI book of the dead. Now, Grandad might take that, um, you know, as a bit of a problem, but I don't think he will. I think he'll actually enjoy it. And it's full of... Silly, interesting facts. Again, it's not a book for sitting down reading. It's just a book for kind of working your way through. Uh, you know, dip into it occasionally, pick something, just go with it. It's, it's funny. It's, I've, again, I haven't read it. I've stood in Borders, and we'll have a little conversation about them in a moment or two, uh, and read bits of it and thought, actually, I would like that myself. And I know from my own grandfather's time that he would love it. Yeah, that's one of the books that I identified uh, that, that you and I will probably get at Christmas time. Uh, you're going to discover a lot of things. Uh, why a church composer invented the hand grenade. And what was uh, Leonardo's proudest achievement? That's the two uh, little things that the dust cover tell you to try and get you to, to dig into it. Right, that's Grand. What about Gran? Well, Gran, I'm going to suggest two things. First, this is Cecilia Ahern, an Irish writer, but I suppose you would call it chiclet. This one, the book that I recommend is called The Gift. And again, it's just a wonderful book. The other one is a kind of similar thing, but it's called The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. And it's really about the first detective either. The uh, first detective ever, I should say. Now, my gran loved all that stuff. She loved all the kind of real-life detective stories, true detective, all those old uh, pulp magazines that used to come over as ballast on the boats from America. And I think she might like that. Basically, there was a murder in the house the detective uh, went in, it, the first proper use of police procedure, and again, an interesting book, and I think 
she would either like that or she would like Cecilia Ahern. Right, I've tried to pick the, the books that I think you and I are going to unwrap on Christmas Day from someone in the family, and I've picked what, two, one that I think you'll like, one that I think I'll like, and one that I hope yeah. neither of us get. The one that I hope neither of us get, first of all, is at Wolf Hall, which is uh, the winner of this year's Man Booker Prize for 2009, uh, which is just an absolute nonsense. And I say that because it's the Booker Prize book and I hate reading these sorts of things. So uh, I hope neither of us get that. Uh, the one that I hope you get is The Magical World of Milligan. Uh, this was uh-huh. Spike Milligan. Yeah, absolutely. Well, project. I would certainly choose that over Wolf Hall. Although I'm, I'm tempted by Wolf Hall. I haven't read it, but I am tempted. It's got great reviews. I just think it's because it wins the Booker Prize. That's my problem. I, I think it's a kiss of death for a lot of these books. Is that you just think, oh, it's going to be literary and I'm going to hate it. So I'm, you know, I've I've dipped into it and I may just finish it. But I, I'll I'll maybe talk about that in a couple of months. But the magical world of Milligan. It was something that Spike Milligan wrote for his own kids over 50 years ago, and uh, I thought you'd just quite like it with the grandkids. The one for me is Thirty Second Theory. Uh, this is a great idea. This is a book that shows you how to explain everything from the Big Bang Theory to uh, the Theory of Relativity, uh, Natural Selection, all of them in 30 seconds. It's easy to digest and it'll be great for parties and I think that would be a good one for me. Bits and Pieces is the section of the show where we normally talk about the things that don't really fit into any of our other sections and we'll still be doing that in a few minutes' time but there's one that, that really does fit into bits and pieces but just doesn't seem right to put it into that because that's the, the fun part of the programme and it's the sad news uh, that uh, has reached us this month that Borders, uh, one of the mainstays of book retailing on the high street is in serious trouble uh, James, it's it, it's bad news when you hear things like that but it's also a sign of the times, isn't it? It's the recession it's the march of uh, online retailing it's sad news for Borders but what do you think? Inevitable? I was astonished and surprised by it. I, I don't know whether it's inevitable or not. Let's hope that Waterstones, for example, is not on the same uh, boat and what I liked about Borders and I suppose about Waterstones as well was that they were big bookstores you know you could find lots of different things in them uh, when I was growing up most bookstores were kind of small places there were specialist ones that did school books they were then reasonably sized ones but still small where you could get kind of most reasonable fiction uh, but as you say lots of things have changed I mean look at the number I've gone to my local Asda which is a very big one and they have a huge range of books you know and they're well priced as well like they're well below borders weren't cheap you know they were almost always full price and even when they were selling other things like DVDs they weren't cheap so I'm really sorry to see them going and I would be worried that you know Waterstones would follow them I think it's it's much better to be able to walk to the shop to have that big selection in front of you and to make a choice I just I can't go past the bookstore you know my friends when they're out with me want to keep me on a leash for that very reason I, I wonder if uh, one of the reasons that I liked Borders is one of the reasons that it, it has found itself in this this problem Waterstones is, is, a, is an old fashioned bookstore I think it's the one that my, my parents love wandering around because it's quiet, it's a bit like a library it's got nice wood panelling it's a steer, it's nice, you can you can soak in the, the, the literature. Borders was almost a much more vibrant place. It was uh, full of life, there was lots of people wandering about, and they tended to be younger, people who didn't like the library feeling. And I wonder if that customer base are the ones who have naturally gravitated towards the internet, and that's what's caused Borders the problem. I think you're right. The big onla- online retailers, I mean, they, there was a, a wonderful book called The Long Tail by an economist, and what he was saying was, and we use Amazon just as an example, was that Amazon could afford to stock you know, small numbers of small books uh, because they were huge 
and you wouldn't find them in Borders or Waterstones or anywhere else. And, you know, all of these things, have, I think, have led to the demise of Borders. I agree with you. I think Borders was a buzzier place. I mean, they used to have, you know, open mic nights for musicians and even bits of comic comedy and things like that. They also sold other things as well. There were concessions in the store and sold nice papers and things, nice writing papers, which I always love. Uh, they had a great DVD section um, and a great music section. But I have to say, I think one of the things that hurt them was that they were expensive. You know, full price on books. Yeah. Those days have gone. It's whether, you know? whether they were expensive or whether they just appeared expensive because everyone else was so cheap. And also, just to clarify there, because your Irish accent got on the road there, did you say buzzier or busier? Well, both, I think. <laughs> it's <laughs> the same I think thing. The busier, yeah, exactly. I think the, the busy part of it has obviously disappeared. Clearly, they are on, in major difficulties. My local one, which is not that far from me, is closing on Christmas Eve. And I do think it's a great shame. Well, as it's the last ready, steady read of the year and of the decade, this month we thought we'd talk about the standout books of the last 10 years. Now, our criteria for this isn't literary greatness, commercial success, quirkiness. It's actually a bit of everything. What we're looking for, what James and I set ourselves the task of doing, is coming up with three books each which have made their mark on the noughties for whatever reason. They're just memorable. And, uh, well, I go first, James. You, you charge ahead. I'd be that, interested to hear what you thought. Well, the one that you hate uh, is Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. That's, for me, a standout book of the decade. And my reason for that is I think it captured the imagination of the public in a way that no other book since Harry Potter has managed to do. And then that leads me on to my second choice, which is Harry Potter and the, and the everything, almost all of them. Uh, but we'll talk about Harry Potter in one second. But what do you think? Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code, a standout book, because it just fired up everybody's imagination. I think that's absolutely right. I can't disagree with you. Publishing sensation sold millions and millions and millions of copies, everybody reading, everybody talking about it. I thought, it, I don't like the style of writing. I thought it was a good enough plot. You know, it's basically a thriller, but somehow, as you say, it tapped into the zeitgeist, the feeling of the decade, and everybody absolutely loved it. I don't like the book. Uh, and I don't particularly like Dan Brown as a writer, but I couldn't disagree with you that it was an important book uh, in terms of publishing generally and just getting people reading again. But, well, that leads me on to J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and all of the books, because in 10 years' time, when my kids start to read Harry Potter, what they're going to be able to do is something... They'll never appreciate something that, that, that all of us did over the, the, the last 10 years, which is having to wait to find out what happens next in the series. It's been, yeah. well, over the last decade, we've come to the end of a Harry Potter book, known there's been a year or 18 months to the next one, and we've all been waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen to some of the characters. When my kids come to read it, they can sit in over a weekend and read all of the books in one go if they want. So, for me, Harry Potter, it's not just a, a, a book of the last decade, it's a book of the last century, and just how powerful and important it has been to re-energising reading as a pastime for kids. I couldn't agree more. I think they're wonderful books. I actually think quality of the writing is pretty good. J.K. Rowling has obviously mined every piece of, uh, you know, fantasy that has ever existed in the world. But nonetheless, she writes well. She's tied in, you know, the old kind of fat oil of the remove, the, everything from Billy Bunter into a kind of, you know, fairly high-level horror, but at a level which is perfectly pitched for all of her readers and I think she's been absolutely tremendous. I think she deserves every penny that she's earned from them. Uh, she's done more good work with those books than teachers have done for years, despite having tried very hard. And my third book is Lynn Truss Eats, Shoots and Leaves. It's the, uh, 
It's the book that basically led the revolution against bad grammar, and it became for a while the book that everybody wanted to have, either in their toilet or on their coffee table. And it's I can't think of another book that's that's been talked about quite as much by people who have never read it. Well, I've read it because when I first started in work, one of the things that somebody gave me as a present was Ernest Gower, who was a, a called plain English, right? And he was a civil servant, and what he was trying to do was to stop people writing in that dreadful jargon that we all use, you know, within civil service or local government or anywhere else. And that was a wonderful little book, very old-fashioned now. But to see Lynn Truss's book, I think, is fantastic. And just today, I came across another four examples of what she refers to as the grocer's apostrophe. You know, this desire to write uh, apostrophe S at the end of things when it's just a plural and you just need an S. And I often think what she really ought to do is produce that book in a slightly different format, kind of long and heavy, and then you could go in and hit people with it. I saw an episode of uh, QI on the television a couple of weeks back, and one of the, the comedians said that he saw grocers written with a comma as opposed to apostrophe. He says it looked like the apostrophe had died. And I think that's <laughs> a, a good way of putting it for everything. But there are my three books of the decade. What have you chosen? Well, I've chosen a couple of things. First of all, I've chosen, like you, I, I suppose it's a children's book, The Amber Spyglass by Philip Pullman. In fact, all of the books by Philip Pullman. Uh, in which he writes again about a rich fantasy world that's kind of just round the corner from ours. And for the same reasons, I think he writes beautifully. I think he asks a lot of pertinent questions. Um, and I think, again, this, these have been extraordinarily popular with children, with young adults and with adults as well. I read them myself and absolutely loved them. And I'm an, an old science fiction and fantasy reader, as we've said many a time before, and thought they were fantastic. I think Philip Pullman, if it wasn't for that that J.K. Rowling was running at the same time, would have been... Uh, the standout children's book of the last decade, but he's unfortunate that he might be able to run the uh, the, the 100 metres in, in 10.2, but someone can always, always do it at 9.9. What else have you got? I've got Zadie Smith's White Teeth. Now, this for me is a book... I'm not a believer in burning books, but by God, I would burn this one. I wish I had a cold fire. It would be straight onto the back of it, right? It's one of those things that people love. You know, it's... The, the woman is of mixed racial heritage. It's kind of literary fiction. I just... And it's dreadful. It's dull. It's boring. It goes on forever. I hate it. So I absolutely hate it. it stands but as a publishing for sensation, it's definitely there. It stands out for you for all the wrong reasons then. What's your third choice? Last choice, again, for all the wrong reasons, Stephanie Mayer. Another fantasy book aimed principally at young adults, principally at young girls. This is the, the kind of vampire stories, New Moon and all those. They are just appalling. Now, I don't mean the stories. I don't have a problem with that at all. There's actually half a dozen wonderful um, vampire-type books out there which I would recommend to anybody. Try a woman called uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough if you want to read some proper uh, vampire stories. But the, the actual quality of the writing is turgid. Obviously, young girls in particular love them. Again, it's a good thing that people are reading. That's always a good thing. Uh, but I just think they're awful. I can't stand them. Now they're being made into films as well. Uh, again, a publishing sensation, no question about that. Good luck to the woman, but could somebody not take her aside and teach her how to write? Ladies and gentlemen, our very own answer to Jeremy Clarkson on the programme there, James Lavery, uh, dissing one of the biggest publishing phenomenons of the last decade. But, as you say, you're not the target audience. It's, it's, you must think of that in the same way you think of Mills and Boons.
It's time to talk about another Christmassy thing, annuals. They've been around for decades and everybody's got a favourite, be it the Bruins and Willie, the Beano, the Guinness Book of Records, or any one of a host of different books. But look around the annual section of your local bookstore, and at this time of year it really is a section, and you'll find that if you've ever heard of a character or it's got a television series, it will have a book out every Christmas. James, has there been an explosion in annuals, do you think, in recent years, or have I just never noticed how many of them there are at this time of year? You know, I thought that at first as well, but in fact, when I cast my mind back and when I did a little bit of research on the internet and looked up annuals, for example, on eBay to see what was available and all of the rest of it, it turns out that there hasn't been such an explosion. What we see now is what has been going on for a long time. There have always been television tie-ins, film tie-ins. Now we see things like celebrity tie-ins and Disney, for example, have a much bigger presence than they ever used to have. Uh, But there's always been these annuals. I have to say, I didn't consider them proper annuals. The proper annuals for me were the Beano and the Dandy and the Topper and the Wizard and the Victor and all these kinds of things. And I know that's given the age away yet again. But, you know, they're still there. The Transformers, the Ben 10, the Star Wars, all these things are out there. What do you think the initial purpose of an annual was? Was it to give fans of comics a, a sort of a, an extra dose of their favourite characters on Christmas Day? That's exactly what it was for, I think, and also obviously to make a lot of money at that Christmas season for the publishers, and uh, that was done reasonably well. I mean, some of them were, I just, I never liked them. I mean, I could never, for the life of me, understand what people saw in Rupert the Bear, you know. The only place you ever saw them was in the doctor's surgery, where obviously somebody had given them to his kids, and they didn't like them either, and thought, take them in and let let them lie in the surgery where somebody else can read them. But the Beano and the Wizard and the Rover, these were all great things, and I absolutely loved them. Do you think, are they a useful addition to the, 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 the comic canon, if you like, or are they just a great, great marketing ploy to give your auntie who wants to buy you a present and doesn't really know you that well an idea of something to buy you? Well, I think, again, they're both. I mean, I would soon tell my auntie, or have told my aunties in the past, for God's sake, don't be getting me anything by IPC. You know, get me the ones that come from Dundee. You know, get me the Beano or the Dandy and all that kind of stuff. Even our Willie and the Bruins, I think, are just... I still read them and still laugh at them as if I was 6 or 10 or, you know, 14. I think they're absolutely wonderful. But there's no question but that that's what they were for in terms of making money for the publishers. That's that's what everybody publishes books for, you know. You the writers a, don't... I was going to ask, do you think... You, do you get a sense that the, the new ones... I mean, let's look at the Bruins' new Willie for a second. Do you, do you sort of get a sense that they're... Uh, they're rushed out these days because I look back at some of the annuals that I, I had when I was a kid some 20-odd years ago when I, when I last got the Bruins al- album under the, the tree from Santa. Uh, and they just don't seem as good this, this year. And I can't decide if that's because I'm older and don't appreciate the comics or if the production values and the time to, to craft them aren't as great as they once were. I think we're, there are two or three things you have to watch here. The first thing is that the Bruins and Irwally are still, I think, as good as ever they were. You know, I think uh, DC Thompson up in Dundee, still turning those out, still putting the the uh, comic strip itself in the papers. I think they're perfect, right? Everything else, I think, has just gone to the dogs. Grumpy old man, nostalgia's not what it used to be, however you like to call it. But I don't, I don't like any of the rest of them. I read the Beano and the Dandy again, standing there, thinking I'll buy these for the grandchildren, and I didn't. I ended up buying Ben 10 for my grandson because he just loves it, and he's not at the reading stage. But there's no question in my mind but that the content of the modern ones is much poorer than the content of the old DC Thompson ones produced up in Dundee. 
What about annuals? That, that category of book that's not quite an annual, uh, it's something that only comes out at Christmas. The two that I always remember are, and I love to get are the Guinness Book of Records and Tom Shields' Diary from the Herald. And I don't think we've had a Tom Shields' Diary for a couple of years, but I used to love getting them on Christmas Day, even as an adult. Well, there are still a few of those about. I mean, there's the Top Gear book, for example, and I thought I had passed the Tom Shields' Diary. And like you, I used to quite like and I used to love reading the diary and I like reading the little bits. And I used to always buy my father every two or three years, because you didn't really need it every year, the Guinness Book of Records, and he loved it. He would come in kind of tired from work late at night. He was a chef. Sit and dip into that, have a cup of tea, listen to the radio, um, and he just absolutely loved it, and I liked it myself. So they're, as you say, I don't think they're quite annuals in that sense. You've also got got things like Short's Almanac, which I've been getting for the last couple of years, and... It is what I would call a toilet book. So, Sorry, ladies, if you're listening to this, but we gentlemen have been known to sit in the toilet and enjoy perusing through a book or two. And the good thing about things like Short Salmonac is you can read one page or 20 page, depending on what your time factors are. Yes, depending on how busy or otherwise you might happen to be. Well, I mean, I kind of quite like those. That's what the you know the QI book of the dead and all these other things are a bit like that as well, aren't they? And the Short Salmonac, when it first came out, was a good thing. Um, now, like all of these things, that you know, you turn it out every year, but it's a bit tired, and I'm never completely convinced that it's necessary or even enjoyable. Uh, I liked the first one. I couldn't do it after that. I just I gave up after that, you know? Right, and what would you like for your Christmas this year? Here's your choice. You can have the Peppa Pig annual, but my daughter might get upset because she wants that, or you can have the X Factor annual, James. Uh, give her both of them, God love the child. Just shower her with gifts. I don't want either of those, right? I don't even want the Beano. I like the Bruins. I do actually like the Bruins, uh, but I don't want the Beano. It's dreadful, and I certainly don't want Top Gear. I'd rather watch the, the programme than read about it. Well, the one that I want is uh, the Bruins are really the glory years, because that uh, takes go. me back to when it was good. But there we go. If you are buying an annual this year, uh, enjoy it, because you read it on Christmas Day, and then you'll find it in a cupboard in 15 years' time, and then you'll get to be doing it nostalgically. Absolutely. It's time for Bits and Pieces, that part of the programme where we like to talk about things that don't really fit anywhere else. But our first part tonight does fit somewhere else. We just couldn't fit it in because we had so much else to talk about. Uh, James, one of your Bits and Pieces is you'd like to recommend some books for me to read to my daughter, who's two and called Katie. Well, the first one you get is uh, Room on the Broom, a famous book by Julia Donaldson, um, told in a kind of rhyming couplet, really funny. My grandchildren, who are four and five, just love it and they would allow you to read it to them ten times in a row if you let them. The other one that I, I suggest you get is either The Jolly Postman or The Jolly Christmas Postman by Jane and Alan Alberg. Now, these are both wonderful books. Don't give them to the kids, right? Sit them on your knee, read the book with them, because they're full of little bits and pieces. The Jolly Postman, for example, all the letters to you know the gingerbread man and various other categories are in there. And, of course, kids will take them out and eat them or tear them up or do other things with them. And you will want to keep those bits for the next time you read. So they're, they're not to be handed to the children, but certainly they are there to be played with while they're sitting on your knee. Thank you very much. I will go out and get them for, uh, for Katie, because she's at the stage where she's enjoying getting, getting a storybook, as she calls it, read to her at night. One of my bits and pieces then, uh, Get a Grip on Physics by John Gribben. Uh, is a book that is enjoying a massive boost in popularity. It's rocketed up Amazon's bestseller chart because of a bit of uh, unintentional publicity. Have you any idea where Get a Grip on Physics by John Gribben has been seen in order to get it such a, a high profile on Amazon? 
Uh, don't tell me it's been in somebody's see-through briefcase as they carted it into 10 Downing Street. Mm. I know that's happened a few times. No, it's I not. I know that it must be in the jungle. No, it's not even that. I can I can tell you this is uh, quite amusing to me. Tiger Woods has been in the news uh, this huh. month, the golfer, uh, after his car was involved in a bit of an accident involving a tree in a golf club, it would appear. But one of the newspapers managed to get a picture of the inside of his car, which basically had lots of broken glass lying about, you know, round about the gear stick and round about the pedals. But there lying was a book called Get a Grip on Physics by John Gribben, which he'd obviously been reading and he just dumped it on the floor. And because it was in that picture and Tiger Woods has been reading it, it's been boosted up the bestseller chart. And I think the message there is no matter how good your marketing strategy is, sometimes something will happen that gets you publicity you couldn't buy and you couldn't dream up. Absolutely. It's not, not quite a celebrity endorsement really, is it? But it's not very far from it. And you've got one more for us. Uh, this got, is an interesting one. This is, this is more of a serious one, actually. Well, it is more of a serious one. Uh, Margaret Hodge, the Arts Minister, uh, is about to come out with a long-awaited consultation paper on the future of libraries. And one of the things, for example, and this has a bearing on what we were saying earlier about borders, that she is going to suggest in this is that libraries ought to be allowed to sell books, um, that they would be, I suppose, in direct competition uh, with you know, the likes of Waterstones or, or the online retailers or whatever. I'm in kind of two minds about that. My library already sells books in the sense that they sell, you know, some of the, the old stock that they, they don't no longer use. And occasionally they have a special offer on, on particular books. For example, uh, recently they were selling or giving away, in fact, copies of The Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle. But I have a kind of simple view about libraries, right? Fill them with books and leave them alone. Right? Don't go through this business of, oh, we must have lots of music and we must have lots of DVDs. And, you know, I, I don't object to that particularly, but they are libraries. You know, they are there for education and entertainment, uh, and that's kind of my view about it. I don't know whether you agree. I couldn't agree more with you. I think that uh, it's horses for courses, that old phrase. Let libraries lend books, let someone else sell them. That's not what they're there to do. Well, that's us run out of time for Ready Steady Read this month, our Christmas edition. We will be back with another edition of the podcast in January. For now, though, thank you very much for listening and Merry Christmas. <laughs>